Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 22. If you have been with us for the last few years and we've been working our way through this great gospel, then you've come to realize the, the sort of the unifying theme of Matthew's gospel, which is the kingdom of God. From the very opening verses of this gospel, we, we saw this uh, embedded in the genealogy of Jesus Christ that sort of reiterated again and again that he was David's son, he was the son of the king, he had come to establish the kingdom. And when we hear the first uh, sermon uh, uh, sort of preached in the gospel, we hear it on the lips of John the Baptist, it's a message of the kingdom, to repent because the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. In the next chapter, the very same message on the lips of Jesus Christ, repent because the kingdom of heaven has come near. And in Jesus' opening sermon, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, the, the manifesto of the kingdom, if you will, the very opening words we hear that blessed are the poor in spirit because theirs is the kingdom of God. He sort of bookends that at the very end whenever he comes back with this dreaded seen on the final day, the day of judgment, and he says there will be people who are coming before him on that day saying, Lord, Lord, and he'll give them those faithful words, depart from me, I never knew you. They'll be wanting to enter his kingdom, and yet he will say at the doorway, I never knew you. And over and over again, we see him giving these warning after warning after warning about the dangers of missing the message of the kingdom, of not understanding the kingdom, of overlooking the kingdom. Later on, he he gives a whole chapter of parables in Matthew chapter 13, which are all about the danger of missing the kingdom. If you don't see it and you don't understand it, or if your heart is unprepared for it, it's too hardened to receive the seed of the gospel of the kingdom, or it's too uh, crowded by the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches. Later on, he'll tell a, a young man who wants to understand the kingdom that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter into the kingdom. He will tell stories about how people overlook the kingdom, they disregard the kingdom, thinking it's nothing more than a mustard seed, and not really contemplating the potential of how it will grow and what it will become one day. They disregard it in the present because they're not really anticipating what will be in the future. All these warnings, all these sort of parables, all these stories over and over and over again, all the way through Matthew's gospel about people who are who are not listening or they're overlooking or they're ignoring calls to enter the kingdom of God. Well, as we come to Matthew chapter 22, really beginning in 21 and going all the way through Matthew 23, these three chapters are sort of the closing arguments, if you will, for our Savior. As He's coming and making His final appeal to the people of Israel particularly, about his offer of the kingdom. And this is his last public appeal. This is his last public day of teaching, the final day before uh, his, his arrest and, and crucifixion. This is Wednesday before he'll be crucified on a Friday. And he's there teaching in the temple and giving this final warning about missing the opportunity that is in front of you or missing the opportunity that was presented to them, I should say, to receive the kingdom and to enter the kingdom. 
Today we come to another uh, sort of passage that echoes that theme, another parable that reverberates the warnings that have been coming again and again and again and again, the dangers of disregarding God's call into His kingdom. That is the gospel call, you know. When we talk about the call to the kingdom, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about the gospel call. The call for you to come out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of His beloved Son. The call to come and to submit yourself to His Lordship as your King. The call to come and to find in Him eternal hope of salvation and entrance one day into His final kingdom. Manifest here on earth and then manifest in eternity with Him in heaven. This is the call. And this is His warning yet again, of the great and awesome opportunity and the great and awesome danger to disregard all of this. Now, this comes to us particularly in Matthew 22, verses 1 through 14, in another parable, a parable this time about a wedding feast, about a a group of people invited to a wedding feast that, that pictures this invitation, this call that has gone out for people to enter into His kingdom. And this is what Matthew tells us in verse 1. Again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I've prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, everything is ready, come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully and killed them. The king was angry and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man with no wedding garment. And he said to them, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to his attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Like so many parables that we've seen, this is another one about the kingdom. This one, like so many, grounded in Old Testament imagery, because in the Old Testament, Jews pictured God's kingdom like a feast, like a banquet table. Particularly, one of the passages they would go to again and again was in Isaiah 25, where Isaiah says, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well refined. 
And he'll swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all the peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He'll swallow up death forever. And the Lord will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he'll take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We've waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We've waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in salvation. Well, Jesus is picking up on that very familiar imagery of the kingdom of God like a feast. And he's presenting it here in this picture of a king who's giving a wedding feast, one particularly for his son. And a wedding feast, just like in our own day, in those ancient days was a big deal. A lot of time, a lot of effort, a lot of expense went into that. If you've ever planned a wedding, you know it's not something you throw together overnight. It's not something you put together even in a matter of weeks. Sometimes people plan for months for something like this. Well, in the ancient world, it was even more so. People would be preparing for a long time to get ready for something to take on the responsibility for something of this magnitude and of this expense, massive endeavors, because they would go on and on and on and on. I remember going to a wedding here one time, meeting a sweet couple from Britain, and they were surprised that we only spent six hours at our weddings or seven hours at our weddings. They said in in England, those weddings... I guess go from morning to evening over there all day. Exhaust me, I know. I know in Africa, uh, those weddings sometimes can go multiple days, spanning nights where you would come and stay over. Well, in the ancient world, it would be the same way. These were big events and they spanned a long time. And so these feasts involved not just multiple courses, but multiple meals that would have been involved with all of this. And all of it, as I said, without the conveniences of, of our modern uh, appliances and refrigeration and hot plates and all those things, all of it would have been uh, incredibly labor-intensive, not to mention just very expensive, particularly in a day where people struggled uh, just to have their daily bread where daily food wasn't taken for granted. Most people spent their days working in their fields and then coming home and then on top of that spending hours both both, uh, purchasing or harvesting and then preparing and then cooking their food. An enormous amount of time went into food preparation every day. And of course, when you throw a, a feast for lots of people, The amount of food involved, the amount of time involved, the amount of labor involved, the amount of expense involved, all of this was handled with great preparation and great care. In fact, they had developed a system to account for as many of the variables as they could. They would develop a system where they would send out an announcement of the wedding feast, an initial invitation to those that they wanted to come, and then they would wait for responses to that invitation to find out how many people committed to come, and then they would go out and they would acquire all of the the food, they would slaughter the animals, they would prepare all the carcasses, they would get all the firewood that was necessary, they would gather all the produce, and they would take all the spices, and then they would make sure they um, uh, have 
the uh, schedule for all of the servants who would be involved with all of this process. And then once they do all of that and they kind of assess how many people are coming and how much work they have to do and what all it's going to take, then they would prepare the process of putting all that together. And then whenever they're on the verge of being ready for the meal, they would send a second invitation to the people who had responded to the first invitation. And that second invitation would be people going out and basically announcing it's ready. Time to come. Everyone sort of show up at this, you know, particular uh, uh, hour tonight at uh, the agreed upon location and we're going to begin the feast. All the preparations, all the hours and days and everything had been accounted for. Now that helps you then understand this parable. Because it helps you understand the responses that are given. Because they are given here as a picture of people who are invited to God's kingdom. The feast of His kingdom. And the responses in light of all of that are shocking. It's shocking how people are so flippant and disregarding of this invitation that's given by this king. And Jesus gives to us basically three responses here that represent three responses to the gospel that help us uh, sort of understand his gospel call. And it begins in the first seven verses with the gospel call that's neglected by the self-satisfied. That is the best way to describe these people. They're just self-satisfied. We're told at the end of verse 3 that when this final invitation went out, the people wouldn't come. And by the way, these, these people inviting, these servants who are going inviting, they are all of the prophets and the priests and the, uh, and the uh, uh, evangelists and the preachers throughout all the ages, particularly for Israel, for all the ones that God had sent to the nation of Israel over and over and over and over again, not to mention the people that God has sent into your life and into my life and repeatedly given us an invitation to come into God's kingdom. And the picture here is that of repetition. He is sending and he's sending again. And he's pleading and he's giving his call, come into my feast, come into my kingdom. And of course, we know the original invitees into this kingdom was Israel, right? Apart from all the people on the, on the face of the earth, apart from every other city, every other tribe, they were the ones who were pre-selected. They're the ones who got the initial invitation. They're the ones who indicated their intent in their covenant with God to come into his kingdom. They had given every indication that they wanted to be a part of this thing. But then when the time came for them to actually commit, they wouldn't come. You know, but the king here is gracious. He's kind. He's patient. And so he can't believe what he's hearing. I mean, he can't. There must be some sort of mistake. There must have been some misunderstanding. There must have been some a sort of uh, obstacle. If you go out, he says, go again. He sent more servants and say to them, uh, tell those who have been invited, see, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fat calves have been slaughtered. Everything is ready. 
come to the wedding feast. I mean, he just can't imagine that they would, they would treat all of his preparation and all of his effort and all of his expenses. They, they, he can't believe that they would treat his invitation so flippantly. I mean, as I said, these were expensive and intensive preparations. This would have been not only a great privilege to come to a wedding feast. I mean, it would have been a great privilege to come to the feast of the king. This was the pinnacle of the social life in their, in their town. This was an opportunity that everyone would have won, wanted to be involved with, not only to be a part of the king's court, but to eat the finest and the richest food that they could have imagined. And on top of all that, there's no entry fee. They're not contributing anything. They're just supposed to show up, just come. It was unimaginable that someone, particularly someone who had already indicated a commitment, that they wouldn't show up. But this is obviously a picture, a picture of God's invitation, a picture of God's call to salvation, a calling on their life, a calling on our life, a calling on your life and mine to come to His feast to his kingdom, a place where, as Isaiah said, all tears are wiped away, all pain, all sorrow, where the richest and the finest that you could ever have longed for or hoped for are spread before you, where he has made every preparation to satisfy your deepest desires and all at no expense to you. This is God's goodness. This is His kindness. This is His grace. This is His mercy all put on display and freely and joyfully offered, lavish and gracious in every way, which makes the response absolutely deplorable here. To receive an invitation that you had already accepted and then at that point not to, not to respond is inexcusable. Jesus basically breaks down the responses here on what you might call two categories of people that refuse. The first would, you might call the apathetic. The apathetic, maybe the distracted. It says in verse 5 that when this group went back out to invite them again, they paid no attention to the king's servants, but went off one to his farm Another to his business. As if that farm wouldn't be there tomorrow or that business wouldn't be there tomorrow. These are silly excuses, really. This is, this is the height of, of disregard and indifference to all that the king has done to prepare everything that he has prepared to give graciously and freely and abundantly to you. These are people who are self-consumed, self-concerned, self-focused, completely dishonorable in their response, not making any recognition of what is being offered to them or the tremendous opportunity in front of them, not to mention the tremendous effort that has been made. 
This is, um, this is the sad reality, though, for so many people. Having heard the gospel call again and again and again and again, and you turn away. Because what? Because of whatever you're pursuing, whatever you believe is going to satisfy you more than God's banquet, more than God's kingdom, more than His feast. You know, Isaiah picked this up later on in his gospel I mean, in his, in his uh, uh, letter, in his prophecy, later on he asks Israel in Isaiah 55, 1, where he says to Israel, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. You who, you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. And then he asks them in verse 2, Why do you spend your money for what's not bread? And your wages for what does not satisfy. Why do you waste your efforts pursuing all these things over and over again that you keep pursuing in your life, filling your life with all of these goals that are not satisfying you? You keep going after all of these ventures, all of these pursuits, all of these kingdoms, and they're just leaving you empty and empty and empty. Well, this is essentially what's going on here. These, These people have this feast spread before them, a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. And what do they want to do? Go work on their farm again? Whatever they had in front of them, obviously, didn't compare to the opportunity that was presented to them. Not to mention it could have waited another day. This was the height of selfishness and arrogance. Their commitment meant nothing to them. I remember as a young man, 19 years old, I believe I was, getting all dressed up to go to a wedding. One of the first weddings I could ever remember being invited to, as a matter of fact. And here I was in my, I was in my coat and my, my slacks, and I was all ready. But I was watching a football game. This was in the days before DVR, which I say on the eighth day, the Lord created DVR. Um, Thank goodness. I think probably saved my marriage. But I was at that day, in those days, I was watching a football game. And I completely blew off this wedding because I wanted to watch this game. All dressed up and never even went. And I distinctly remember going back to school. These are friends of mine at college. And seeing them a week later in the hallway, knowing how I had disregarded their special day. I could not face them. The shame that I felt over my selfishness and my immaturity to do something like that still strikes me today, still scars me today. These are people who are blowing off the king. These are people who had already made this commitment and said they were coming and he put out all that expense and none of them show up. Those who will enter God's kingdom are those, those who go into heaven, those that are going to enter in, they're going to cherish what they have. They're going to cherish God's kingdom. They're going to be humbled by their privilege. They're going to be overwhelmed that they were invited to begin with, and there's nothing that's going to be able to draw them away. There's no, no pursuit in this life, no kingdom that they could ever try to build. When God calls, they answer. They understand the free and the gracious call and they commit their life to responding to it. This is what Jesus has already said about the kingdom 
about this gospel call earlier in Matthew 10, 39. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will be the one who finds it. This is, these are the people who understand. There's nothing else that I could pursue that could ever satisfy me as much as this kingdom. There's nothing else that I could ever fill my life with that will fill me the way God will fill me in the kingdom. And so they'll always accept. No possession, no pursuit, no relationship, no other love could replace the love of God. Now, that's one group, that's the apathetic group, but there's even another group that Jesus mentions here that we could call the antagonistic group. I mean, they, they, don't, they don't just sort of flippantly turn away. We read in verse 6, they actually see some of His servants and treat them shamefully and kill them. So these are the people that are not just sort of ignoring quietly the friend that's calling them into the kingdom. These are the people who are who are scorning and mocking and insulting and ridiculing and in some cases attacking the messengers of God. They're actually going out there and they're vilifying these messengers of God and they're, they're inflicting harm on them. Now, this particular group, as we've already seen in Jesus' previous parables, this particular group is represented by the Pharisees, the primary audience of this whole parable to begin with. You remember how ver- uh, chapter 21 ended there in verse 46, where after hearing Jesus already talk about the kingdom, we read that they were trying to arrest him. They wanted to silence him. They had grown weary of his call after call after call, and now they were going to take action against him. So they were antagonistic, they were aggressive. They were intent on destroying the messengers of this king. Well, understandably, when you get to verse 7, then we read the king is angry. Once he realizes what's happened now to this second group of servants after all of his kindness and grace to keep calling them to his banquet, he's rightfully angry that you would treat his messengers with that kind of apathy, with that kind of disregard, or in this case, that kind of, that kind of animosity. And so what does he do? He sends his troops and he destroys them. He destroys them, these murderers, and he burns their city. This is most likely a prophecy about what's going to happen to Jerusalem some 37 years after this. When Jesus had said these words and he had been crucified and rose from the dead and ascended back into heaven, years later, decades later, Rome will march into Jerusalem who had rejected God over and over and over and over again for a thousand years. And they will march into Jerusalem and they will begin by casting their men and their women and their children over the walls of the city to be dashed on the stones below before they then set the temple on fire and then they pull down the entire structure and the city itself stone by stone by stone. In fact, the city sat in ruins for, for, a hundred, for hundreds of years, really. People would occupy the, the space there, but it was largely just sort of a desolate place until only recently. In the last 125 years, when people started to build up Jerusalem again. I remember reading a story about Mark Twain visiting Jerusalem so many years ago and... Uh, 
marveling at what a heap of stones it still was. So he sends his troops in and he destroys these people who disregard his call. But his anger doesn't thwart his desire to celebrate this feast. And he's determined to press forward with it. And so that brings us to the second group here of those who respond, where he tells us in verses 8 and 10 how the gospel call is accepted by the unworthy. That's what he's telling us here when he says this king with his determination to carry on with his feast. He says to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite the wedding fe- to the wedding feast as many as you find. Now these main roads, these weren't the main thoroughfares in the city, the sort of the avenues that had all the prominent shops and the um, prestigious houses. These would have been the roads that were outside the walls of the city where, where essentially the underprivileged lived. These were the people who didn't have the resources, they didn't have the clout, they didn't have the connections to live inside the walls of the city. They would have been the poor, the unsophisticated, the unconnected. All these people, they were the commoners, the undesirables that lived on these main roads that would connect town to town. And in some cases, they were even the bandits who occupied these roads and raided people as they traveled along the way. In fact, in verse 10, the servants of the king went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So they were bringing in the bandits and the poor and all these people, and they filled the wedding hall with those kinds of people. Now, this was unheard of. I mean, this would not have ever happened. The people who have heard this parable would have been shocked to hear this. But this king was determined to pour out his bounty and his goodness on someone. He wanted to enjoy his feast with someone. And so he pours out his kindness on this, the most unexpected. In fact, the biggest barrier here would have been convincing these people that they were actually invited. They would have been saying, me? The king wants me to come to his feast tonight? I mean, it would have been unimaginable for them to hear this news. They would have had to, I'm sure, ask numerous questions to clarify that these servants had identified and found the right people. Some of the people who were themselves just sort of uh, disparate, sort of... uh, um, unconnected people, and then some people who knew that they were among the bad. They were the bandits and the criminals who lived outside the city. They knew that they had no place being invited to this kind of social event. But this is a picture of those who enter the kingdom of God. Those who could not imagine that they ever belonged there. Those who truly understood they had no place being there. They truly had a deep sense of their unworthiness to have ever been invited into God's kingdom. 
They were the last people. They would tell you they're the last people God should have ever called. They're the last people who should ever be in his kingdom. They're the last people that God should ever be pouring out his kindness to. And they know it. They are the outsiders. They are the forgotten. Now, this is obviously a picture of those outside the boundaries of Israel. This is a picture of the Gentiles. It was Israel who was first invited. It was Israel who refused the invitation. And now Jesus is telling them, I'm going to go outside the boundaries of your city, your town, your nation, and I'm going to call all kinds of people. This was, in fact, what was pictured already in Isaiah 25 when he says he's going to gather the nations of the world. It wasn't just Israel. He was going to gather all the peoples of the world. Peoples from all over the globe. But even within that group, it wasn't just the Gentiles, but it was what, what Jesus has already been indicating. It was, the, it was the tax collectors. It was the prostitutes. It was the sinners. They're the ones who wind up coming to this feast. They're the ones who wind up being invited and sitting at the table and having all the graciousness and kindness of God poured out on them. You can... Just imagine the sneering and the mockery of those original invitees as they see the people streaming into the hall. They themselves aren't going in, but they have no problem sneering and mocking at those who are trying to enter. But if you're not going to enter, if you're not going to respond to the call of God, He's going to find people. And they're not invited in because they're the best. And they're not invited in because they're all worthy. They're not invited in because they were even a part of the original party. They're invited in in spite of the fact that they have no place of being there. And yet they're going to receive the kindness and the grace and the mercy and the abundance of God. They're going to be feasting. This is exactly what Jesus has been teaching over and over and over again. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the poor in spirit because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. These are the people. These are the people. And they've got all their problems and they've got all their issues and they've got all their baggage and they've got all their background, but they're coming. And they're responding. And they come and they feast and they are welcomed by God's grace. Those who had all the privilege, all the covenants, they had all the law, they had all the prophets, they had all the privileges, all of Israel throughout all their history, not to mention those who were with Christ in His own day and they had watched all the miracles and they had heard Him teach Himself about the gospel and they had seen his righteous life, those people who had all the privileges, all the opportunity, all the call, and they didn't respond, they're going to be the ones who miss out. Such a sad, sad, sad outcome. Well, Jesus tells us, One more, gives us one more scene of one more response that is important to understand. It comes in verses 11 through 14, and it's the gospel call that's squandered by the insincere. Because even among those who do come, Jesus wants us to understand that there's still going to be some who miss out 
among all those who are called from the outside. And this is the image in verse 11 of the king. He comes in, he looks around his wedding hall. He wants to sort of inspect how things are going. And he finds somebody there, an attendee, who isn't dressed in the proper attire. He had been invited by these slaves and they went out in the highways and they invited the good and the bad. He had a legitimate invitation, but he didn't make the proper preparation. In this case, the guy had come apparently in his ordinary clothes, his everyday clothes. They were probably the same clothes he had been wearing out in the field, the filthy clothes, the working clothes. They might have been the ragged clothes that he had just living on the street, but whatever it is, they were unfit for this event. Now, we're not given any more information. We're never told where he was supposed to get wedding garments, but in all likelihood, there wasn't even a special garment. There's no indication in the ancient literature that, that Jews wore special garments to weddings. Most likely, this is just simply a clean pair of clothes. Like, he didn't even, he didn't even bother to clean himself up or to even, even to take a moment to find a clean pair of clothes or even to wash the clothes that he had. He didn't do any of that. He didn't do anything to respond to the tremendous opportunity that was presented in front of him. He, in other words, he took it for granted that he had been invited and maybe, maybe in that way was dismissive of what a privilege it had been. And so the king comes to him in verse 12 and says, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And the guy was speechless. I mean, there, he has no defense for his lack of decorum. He, he's, been, he get, he's given an opportunity to explain himself, and he has no excuse for the vulgarity of his dress. He didn't say, well, I, I didn't have any extra clothes. He didn't say I was too poor. He doesn't say any of that stuff, because whatever the situation was, he apparently knows he's in the wrong. And so he's dumbstruck. This is obviously the person who tries to enter God's kingdom with all the filth of their previous life. That is to say, they're unrepentant. From the very beginning, Jesus had been sounding the invitation, but he'd been sounding it with a necessary call of repentance. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. They came, they wanted to enter the kingdom, but they had no sense of the need to change anything. No sense of the need uh, or no awareness of how unfit and unworthy they were to sit at this table, this feast, in their everyday garments. When you're invited to a feast like this, you're not invited, you weren't asked, you weren't picked because you were strutting around in the, the finest attire and having the sort of most glamorous life. You were invited in spite of all that. And so you come with a deep sense of that baggage or a deep sense of that unworthiness, and so you respond appropriately. You, you try to live up, if you will, to the level of this calling. No sense of of shame on this guy. No sense of desire to leave behind all that filth. He was presumptuous, like the person who flaunts all, all social norms. They decide they're going to be themselves. They're going to show up and they're going to dress 
in some sort of flamboyant or some sort of outrageous manner. They're, they're bucking all social norms and they're doing it. Why? Because they're self-focused. They're focused on themselves and their dress and their immodesty or whatever it might be, rather than being focused on other people or even being focused on the host here. This guy was self-focused, self-centered, self-absorbed. And the king, once again, feels the insult. And so... In verse 13, he says to his attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You may remember last week when we took time to look over at Romans chapter 11 and Paul was explaining to us the kingdom like like an olive tree. And he talks about how Israel had been broken off for their lack of response from the olive tree. But you were grafted in to that olive tree like a wild branch. But then you remember Paul giving the warning for you, lest somehow you don't respond to this high calling in your life, that you might disregard the kindness and the riches of God's grace. He gave a warning saying you also could be broken off. This kind of calling, this kind of kingdom, this kind of feast, it's not to be taken for granted, taken lightly, as if somehow God is not concerned about your life. And you have this kind of invitation to this kind of kingdom, this kind of feast. There is an implicit call for you to want to live up to that, to want to dress yourself appropriately not because that's your entry you weren't chosen because you were dressed in some glamorous fashion but now having been invited and having been welcomed in the call on our lives is to live accordingly this guy he wouldn't do it he was selfish he was self-absorbed he was indifferent to the king as much as those early people that spurned the call and so what does jesus do He has them thrown out, thrown out into what? The outer darkness. What is that? That is eternal punishment. That is one of the most vivid pictures of hell. Striking outer darkness. It speaks about the loneliness that that's going to be. You might imagine... That, you know, if you don't go to heaven, you're going to go to hell with all your friends and all the revelry and all the sort of stuff that you enjoy with them. You'll just sort of do it whenever you get to hell. Well, that's not what hell's like. Hell is lonely. It is an outer darkness where day after day after day after day, you play over in your mind again and again and again all the regrets for all of the opportunities that you spurned, all the times that you turned away from God's invitation. That's why he says there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's an image for frustration and anger. It says whenever they stoned Stephen in Acts chapter 7, they gnashed their teeth at him. And so you're just fueled in your loneliness as you sit there year after year 
realizing all the enjoyment of eternal riches that people are respond, who responded to the gospel call, all that they are receiving, you now being left out because of all of your pride. It's a sad picture, a sad ending for someone who had even made it into the wedding hall. That is to say, people who, in some cases, are in the church even. They make it into uh, what is the visible uh, external manifestation of God's kingdom right now, which is the church. They're sitting there. They hear sermons. They hear uh, Sunday school lessons. They have friends who reach out to them, and they call them, and they call them, and they call them. And yet still, they, they're right there in the middle of the church. They still don't respond appropriately. And even then, even then, they're cast out. Sometimes they know it. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes it is that final day of judgment and they go to enter the kingdom of God and they're saying, Lord, Lord. And he says, depart from me. I never knew you. You might have been in the church. You might have been known by all the pastors and the people, but I never knew you. Jesus gives his explanation here at the end. Many are called. Many are called. There's so many opportunities, so many invitations, so many, so many messages, so many, uh, so many Bible readings, so many prayers. The invitation goes out to so, so many people. Why? Because God's desire is that no one should perish. That's his earnest desire. He doesn't desire anyone to experience that outer, outer darkness. He doesn't want anyone to be cast into that. And so he sends his messengers again and again and again and again. But some refuse. Some are apathetic, distracted by the world, seeking a kingdom that doesn't satisfy. Some are antagonistic. And they lash out at God's messengers. Some want to attend, but they don't want to leave behind their filthy life that they've been living in. And so at the end of the day, even though many are called, few, few enter. Few are chosen. Those who do are humbled by the opportunity when they realize how unworthy they were to receive the call. And they accept it. And they're granted entrance into God's kingdom with a deep, deep sense that God has been gracious. God has been gracious. And so all they can, all they can really reflect on is the reality that I love him because he first loved me. All I can say is he, he selected me. I don't know why, but he, I'm, just, I'm just elected by him because it wasn't my idea. I'm just here because of his kindness. Lord, we're grateful for the invitation. We who have entered in and have already begun to feast at your table, we have tasted of your bounties. You've spread before us already the rich food, and the well-aged wine. And we know ahead of us waits 
a kingdom when your son returns that will be even more glorious. But may we never forget how astounding and inexplicable is the grace of God that has allowed us to come in. I pray for those who are here today who for whatever reason haven't responded to your invitation. They are distracted. They are apathetic. They are disregarding. They look at your kingdom like a mustard seed, thinking of it as nothing, not realizing that it's going to grow one day and fill the entire earth. Lord, I pray for them that they would hear and understand by your gracious call what's laid before them. And I pray they would respond. I pray they would accept. I pray they would enter in and feast at your table. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.